0: Sandeep and Gitanjali Maini Foundation is a Bangalore-based institution that supports Indian heritage, history, art, artists and culture. This is the Expert R, a a series of talks that are light, interesting, inspiring and invigorating. In this session, we meet Manu S. Pillai, the well-known young author and historian. His debut book, The Ivory Throne. Won him the 2017 Sahitya Academy Yuvapuraskar. He has written two more books, Rebel Sultans and most recently, The Courtesan, the Mahatma, and the Italian Brahmin. As we await his next book, slated to release early next year, we chat with him on Rebel Sultans, a project that was supported by the Sandeep and Gitanjali Maini Foundation. Hi Manu, great to have you with us today. And we're going to be examining your book, Rebel Sultans, in this episode of our podcast. So let's begin by talking about the Deccan. Why the Deccan as a focus for the book? What is it about the region that drew your attention?
1: Thank you, Archana, for having me on the show. In fact, you know, without the SGMF, the book would not have been written. It was, you know, an idea that was in my mind for many years because I grew up in the Deccan, And, you know, there was always this sense that there were all these stories swirling about. And I felt that uh, they deserved a storyteller because for some reason they'd been languishing in the shadows. Nobody in a long time had made an effort to bring the stories up front. It was just an idea in my head till the SGMF came forth with the grant and made it all possible. So... First and foremost, thank you uh, not only for the grant, but also for giving me this opportunity to talk about the project. Now, as you know, you know the, when we talk about Indian history, often we are limited to these broad ideas. We think, oh Mughals in the north, you know an empire in the south, or we think you know uh, the British game, the nationalist movement. But the frank truth is that in much of Indian history, there's a huge amount of diversity. There are far too many stories to put into any one linear narrative. So, for example, what is true of the Malabar coast may not be true of the Tamil coast on the other side of the peninsula. What is true of uh, Kanyakumari in the south may not be true of, of Delhi in the north. What happens in Kashmir may not be directly connected to what happens in Manipur. So, you know, there are all kinds of multiple stories that, that need to be discovered, that need to be told. And, and frankly, we need more storytellers to unearth these stories and bring them out into the limelight. Now, with the Deccan, what is remarkable is that you know we, when we think of the Deccan, which is this huge span of territory, you know, parts of Telugu-speaking territory, Maharashtra, uh, parts of Karnataka, even some would extend it even into parts of Tamil Nadu, and this huge space that existed was a, a pretty diverse and interesting zone, and often a, a, a scene of conflict between southern empires as well as northern empires. So people always needed to control this particular territory here. Now. Usually when people talk of the Deccan it is often reduced to either the Mughal invasions into the Deccan starting you know primarily of course from Akbar's time it begins but it really picks up in Aurangzeb's time we're talking 17th century or they talk of it in terms of the Marathas who emerged here in that 17th century and then went on to dominate much of India all the way till 1818 so all the way till the 19th century so the Marathas span out of the uh, the Deccan from Uh, You know, this, this western side, all the way, they go up into Hindustan, that is northern India. They come into Tamil Nadu in Tanjavur and they're sort of spreading out. And so the Deccan is considered prominent as the homeland of the Marathas. But what I often thought about and having grown up here, what often struck me was that in our textbooks, in the stories we heard as children of the region, we would often have these cameo appearances by a lot of other rulers. So there'd be an occasional mention of an Adil Shah of Bijapur, which is now in Karnataka, or a Nizam Shah in Ahmednagar, which is now in Maharashtra, or a Kutub Shah in Golconda, which is now in, in Telugu, uh, in, in Andhra Pradesh, in that part of India. So, you know, it's a huge sort of territory. And there were these cameo appearances of a few rulers who were neither Mughals nor Marathas. They were somewhere in between. And that really piqued my attention, and I thought, who are these other sultans? You know, what were their contributions, and why aren't we talking about them in a more mainstream way? Why aren't we telling their stories? And their stories are singularly fascinating. You know, they, uh, Deccan had its earlier rulers in the medieval or the late medieval period, the uh, the Yadavas and Devagiri, the Kakatiyas, the Hoysalas. You know, these were the original powers. Then you have this huge phase of disruption starting from the late 13th century and through the 14th century when you have invading armies from the north which come down and they establish a new system in the south. And it is in that chaos that on the one hand you have the rise of the Vijayanagara empire, on the other hand you have the rise of these Deccan sultanates. What is originally the southern half is with Vijayanagara, the northern half is controlled by the Bahmani sultans of the Deccan. And the reason I call them rebel sultans is because they were originally, you know, both the Vijayanagara family as well as these Bahmani sultans, in different ways they were connected to the Delhi Sultanate. So all the way in northern India, that empire was their uh, ultimate boss. At more or less the same time in the mid 14th century, both groups sort of rebelled against the power of Delhi and they established their own uh, independent empires in the Deccan. So in the northern Deccan is the Bahmani, southern Deccan is Vijayanagara. And this results in a fascinating dynamic. On the one hand, there's political conflict, on the other hand, there's a huge exchange of cultural ideas. So the Bahmani Sultans will you know, borrow culture, art, painting, techniques, music and dance from Vijayanagara's territories. Vijayanagara will borrow Persianate and Islamicate ideas from the, the Sultans and the Persianate world to which they are connected and bring that into Vijayanagara's court culture. So there's a huge amount of cultural exchange that's happening in this period. And through that, there is this huge efflorescence of, of you know, cultural, amazing cultural fruits, you can call them in this particular region so you have fascinating rulers you have you know great conquerors and fighters you have great strategists you've got city builders you've got you know uh, people who've patronized art people who've patronized music and literature you've got lots of trade happening and the deccan in that sense becomes to india as i as i write in the book it is a mirror of the world it attracts so much international attention and talent as well that in many ways it becomes this diverse multicultural zone and that really is the story this book tries to communicate of course we the, the book focuses largely on the political history and, and and while vijayanagara makes an appearance the primary emphasis is on the sultanates itself and how the Bahmanis eventually collapse and from there, there are these successor states of the Adil Shahs, the Qutub and the Nizam Shahs, and how they in turn have their own fascinating cultures till ultimately they are conquered or defeated by the Mughals while at the same time the Marathas are emerging. So the whole point is to show that the Mughals and the Marathas did not emerge in a, in a political vacuum. They would not come out of nowhere. The platform or the stage was set in the Deccan by these Deccan Sultans, you know, dominated a good 400-500 years that long and huge slice of history by these sort of marginalized sultans. And the idea was to draw them out from the margins and bring them into the mainstream of, of Indian history, to be able to sort of shed light on untold stories that exist across uh, the Indian subcontinent. As I mentioned earlier, you know, there are no similarities. It's very difficult to generalize and produce a linear narrative and these Deccan Sultans with their colourful characters. You know, one Sultan wears a wears nail polish, another one has, has all kinds of interesting ways of punishing people, you know, and all kinds of cruel but also highly, I must say, creative ways of murdering people. Uh, somebody else is a very strong statesman, but is ultimately killed. There's treachery, there's court intrigue. There are these powerful women, for example. There are these Begums who have influence on matters of trade. Uh, they have influence on matters of well, political you know, decision making. They, they're out on the battlefield and there's a lot that is happening here. It's a fascinating cast of characters and a magnificent story. And the idea was to try and resurrect that story In popular imagination, which I hope uh, the book has achieved. It's now been you know two years since SJMF and I together produced this book and in that time it's had not only wonderful reviews but also it's been received in the academic community uh, very positively. We had a a glowing review in studies in history which usually books written for popular audiences don't make it to academic journals and academic critics but the very fact that uh, Rebel Sultan's attracted attention gives me some confidence that the book has perhaps achieved what it's sent out to achieve. As you may be aware, we originally had the hardback version and then earlier this year in 2020, we've had the paperback come out as well with far more illustrations and more images. Because the you know, the art of the Deccan is also strewn across uh, the world really. There are, there are pictures and collections in America. There are pictures and collections in the UK, in Ireland even. And of course, there's some in India, whether it's uh, Bombay, the, the museum in Bombay, or even the private collection of the Jaipur royal family. It's sort of spread all over the place. But although the material is sort of you know, diffuse, it's scattered, one can still pull it all together and tell a compelling story.
0: So then, tell us a little more about this artistic legacy of the Deccan. Uh, like you say, the book has some beautiful images. So can you discuss that a little more in detail? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the
1: things about the Deccan is that not only did it attract talented artists, often the artists who were attracted to the Deccan were then poached by the Mughals in the North. It was this thing where they would hear the Mughals who were supposedly you know, the most splendid court. In many ways, the Mughals had more territory under their command. They would often sort of, you know, hear of these fascinating creative types who would come to the Deccan, whether it was poets, whether it was painters and try, and even, you know, chroniclers and historians, etc. Intellectuals even, and the Mughals would try and get these people to leave the Deccan and come up to the north and serve in the imperial court. And, you know, the Deccan, what you, one of the earliest sort of works you find is from the 1570s. There was an early 1570s, there was a Sultan of the Deccan, in fact his name is ali adil shah and he was actually personally present at the famous battle of talikota in which uh, you know vijayanagara was defeated by an alliance of deccan sultans and it's a it's a very you know important moment in indian history but this ali adil shah was also a very intellectual figure himself he was very adept on the battlefield but he was also very capable as an intellectual figure he had you know he was called adil shah he called himself Adil Shah Sufi because of his interest. There are all these references that whenever he traveled, even if it was to the battlefield, he would cart along with him lots of books. And it is in one of his creations called the Nojumal Ulum that you find some of the earliest samples of Deccan art. And what's uh, you know absolutely remarkable about this is that he's basically translated a, a whole amount of Sanskrit literature in this book, uh, something that is called Varshik Astrology, which apparently exists only in this manuscript now. He's borrowed a lot of elements from South Indian miniature traditions, South Indian mural traditions, the, the form in which a lot of the female figures are, are structured in these, in these paintings in the, Nujum, in the Nujum alolu There, you can very clearly see the South Indian influence, the big disc-like earrings, etc. All the same, it's also got the taken influence in terms of the saris these figures are wearing. There's a lot of interesting thing happening in the Nujum paintings. You know, there's, for example, uh, at one point, you know, you have Mars. Mars is depicted. In this particular text, as a Hindu deity, not in the Islamic style as you would imagine a sultan to do it, but as a Hindu deity with four arms, you know, multiple arms and so on. Sanskrit words are interspersed with Persian, and at one point you can very clearly see the Markandeya Puranam's influence. Venus, another depiction, an illustration of Venus, the goddess. She appears under her name Zura, which is an Islamic name, but she's presented very much again in a Hindu style, you know, with, with multiple arms, etc. And what is very interesting is that she's called the daughter of Bhargua, which is again a, a sort of Islamicization of Brigu from the Sanskrit. Name because in, in Sanskrit, that is father of, of Venus. That's apparently the connection that they've made. And you know, some would think that these illustrations in the Nujum are perhaps a little basic, a little crude, etc. And you know, some have these enormous eyes. Some have some have 32 arms. Some have you know multiple heads. There's one painting I think which was to me was very striking where you have. The same figure with you know, white skin on one side and, and, and black skin on the other side. There's uh, another one. They're all wearing these Maharashtrian saris, these goddesses. These are tantric goddesses in this text created by an Islamic sultan. And there, there's this you know tantric goddess who's sort of flinging men by the hair and somebody else is holding serpents. It's a fascinating work in that sense. But the Deccan art really becomes you know, what you would call achieves a greater level of sophistication in the reign of Ali's nephew, Ibrahim Adil Shah II. In his time, you start seeing that uh, Bijapur, etc. become a huge magnet. Uh, They start attracting a lot of talent from across the subcontinent and abroad. And there's this huge boost of portraiture. There's a huge amount of portraiture being done. And there's also religious art that is being created. For instance, Ibrahim adarsha is is famous for envisioning the Hindu goddess Saraswati in a very unique way. You know, usually when you think of Saraswati, you've got the image that Raja Ravi Varma created, of course, in the 19th century, or you've got references from you know temple sculptures, earlier works in in and from different parts of India. You've got the Pahadi style where Saraswati is depicted in North Indian clothes, for example. But Ibrahim is this fascinating man because he envisions his Saraswati in almost an Islamic costume. So she's if you look at it at one glance, you will think it's a portrait of a Muslim princess. But then you look closely and then you start seeing all the symbols associated with Saraswati are present in this particular painting. So there's, she's got the veena, she's got the conch, she's got the book. All those elements of Saraswati make it to this highly Persianized portrait of the goddess Saraswati. Similarly, in the, in the Sultanate of Ahmednagar. You've got, again, in, in the earlier style of paintings, you know, which I was referring to, which I mentioned when I was referring to Ali Adil Shah, slightly considered cruder or slightly considered not as sophisticated. You have a huge series of portraits uh, in the in this text called the Tariq-e Hussein Shahi, showing a sultan and, you know, his wife and his court it would look rather rudimentary. But in many ways, this is also fascinating art because you have a sultan in, in one painting, you know, his wife, appears almost in his lap. In another painting, you can see that a future censor was not very comfortable seeing a, a queen depicted in a painting that they, they sort of wiped over the queen and reduced her to a smudge. So there's that. Similar painting also emerges with the Kutub Shahs in Golconda, where you have an earlier set which is a rather simple style of, of art that was created and of course a, a later style which is much more sophisticated or much more expert in terms of the people creating. it. And there are portraits so you see the the Brahmin ministers of uh, of the Kutuksha of Golconda. They were Akana and Madhana. They were the two brothers. And again, the way they are depicted in their Persianate court co- clothes. So they're not the image of Brahmins you you would get when you close your eyes and imagine somebody with a sacred thread and wearing a dhoti. No, they're wearing Persianate clothes with turbans, long uh, sherwani-style robes, and you know the right kind of shoes that go with that costume, etc., etc. In many ways, these paintings challenge us to also think about how we envision the past how we envision our ancestors and it's frankly not just the paintings either it's also the architecture so you have elements that are in the in the deccan in the sultanate buildings you see a lot of elements drawn from south indian temple architecture if you go to vijayanagara there you find that the vijayanagara uh, authorities have drawn a lot of elements from the islamic architecture of the sultanates so it's not Although this political antagonism between the two groups, has also a lot of exchange that's happening. So the larger context, not just of the paintings, but also the architecture, they're not just aesthetically appealing. In many ways, they, they themselves also tell a story. They're also giving us a glimpse, they're also giving us a view of these uh, Sultanates and kingdoms of the Deccan and giving us a sense of the cultural space uh, that
0: the Deccan was.